0: Hi and welcome to NeuroDigest, your podcast where we discuss real life stories and matters to do with neurodevelopmental disabilities. November is Epilepsy Awareness Month and today I want us to throw it back to the day we were having a virtual dinner hosting Dr. Kate Oyeke, who will take us through the professional angles and details of what epilepsy is all about. Stay tuned and don't forget to share, subscribe and follow us on our social media thank you very very much for having me um, as I've been introduced my name is Kato Yeoke, I'm a pediatric neurologist working at the Aga Khan Hospital and I feel very honored when I got the call from Sylvia who was referred to me by a dear colleague of mine who is a developmental pediatrician by the name Susan Wamidi who is very much involved with special needs children um, in my practice as a pediatric neurologist um my life is not just strictly speaking epilepsy and seizures. I also um come in contact with a lot of children with special needs as well. Um and that covers the breadth of all the conditions that Sylvia um, has spoken about, and the chairman has also alluded to a lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about. Um, but just so that we limit ourselves and make it a more a fruitful discussion, I'll be talking about epilepsy and seizures in general and the challenges that are unique to children with special needs. Um, And I'll just begin with with an overview of seizures and epilepsy, um, just so that we have a good place to start from. Um, So, seizure disorders are very, very common and they usually have an early onset, which is why many times it would be pediatricians and the doctors of young children that are dealing with this and um, as far as statistics go, epilepsy affects 20 to 40 million people worldwide and so when you think about those figures that's quite a heavy burden um, on several aspects, not just from the medical standpoint but also on the social, economic and all the other factors that would be affected by having such a bulk, bulky number of people being affected and as we all know and as is the expectation the lower and middle income countries which is where a lot of us are from are a doubly hit actually so when we look at the prevalences from the west and try and compare with what we see for example in in in, in sub-saharan africa in certain parts of south america and in south asia we find that our prevalences actually go double so whereas other countries might report prevalence of one percent or less than one percent in their populations we talk about two percent numbers wise and that just tells you that the burden is much greater much of that um, may not necessarily mean that our people are different in any major way it just means that some of our environmental exposures um, as, as determined by poverty rates and the like means we're more vulnerable to certain predisposing um, conditions that could confer the risk or increase the risk for epilepsy. And here I'd be talking about, for example, young children who suffer as a result of obstetric complications and then get certain uh, disabling conditions like cerebral palsy, which then confers a certain risk to epilepsy as well. Um, Access to immunizable conditions, you know, common things like meningitis in infancy, all that is part of the reason why, in our demographic, our epilepsy numbers are much higher. Um, additionally, other environmental um, exposures, such as accidents. So when you look at the statistics, for example, road traffic accidents looking, and that would mainly affect the adult population and the aftermath of that with head injury and the like. So we have higher numbers of that. And for that and that reason alone, our epilepsy numbers will be quite different from what you'll see um, in the West. And so the books, or if you look at a a snapshot figure, you'll be told 0.63%, but in truth, the numbers are much higher and much higher in our own homes, um, especially in our own home country. Um, Overall, the incidence is highest in the first year of, of life. And then it drops to a minimum in the third and fourth decades of life, so people like myself and yourselves our general um age group 30s 20, late 20s 40s are largely spared and then the the, the the incidence and the prevalence then goes up again um in the aging population so the most vulnerable people which is the very young and the very old are the ones that are hardest hit and so i like to limit myself to what we're talking about which is epilepsy however it gets confusing and the waters are a bit muddied when people want to know what's a seizure is a seizure epilepsy what does epilepsy mean and there's such a stigma around the word epilepsy itself um, in our settings so i'll use the, the body that um, does a lot of the definitions for neurologists and epileptologists um, and that is the international league against epilepsy and their definition is that um, epilepsy is a disorder of the brain that is characterized by an enduring predisposition to generate epileptic seizures so one seizure does not necessarily mean that a person has epilepsy all right um and and that definition also encompasses the neurobiological you know the cognitive that's daily mental functioning, the psychological and the social consequences of that core condition. So think of epilepsy as a bigger term that's um more inclusive of what's happening in not just the mind, but the effects of that on the functionality and the livelihoods of the people affected. Um, and in general you would say that if one has two or more unprovoked seizures, and by unprovoked we mean that there isn't an immediate proximate cause that can be attributed to something else. So for example, if I knocked you with my vehicle and you suffered a severe head injury um, and you had a bleed in your brain and had a seizure, that is a provoked seizure. But then if if a person just had seizures that, you know, you can't identify an immediate preceding cause for it, and they have two or more of those, then we would label such a person as having epilepsy. And so a seizure then, um, would just be a transient occurrence of signs and symptoms that occur in that moment due to abnormal or excessive um, synchronous neuronal firing. And basically, that's just lots of fancy science words for um, when you think of it, your brain as a machine, this box that's a machine, and that's got a lot of wires and electricity running through it and if for whatever reason um, for a brief moment there is some um, signs and symptoms manifested by movements or staring or not moving at all and that is as a result of excessive or abnormal firing of these electrical signals that i'm talking about in the brain that would constitute a seizure so so then that tells you that a seizure is that one individual event and they could be many And the epilepsy is what then becomes a definition after you've established a pattern, for example, of having more than one of those events without any immediate provocation. And so a seizure basically is a symptom. It's not a diagnosis in and of of itself. It doesn't constitute a diagnosis. All right. Now, many times we get confused, especially in children with disabilities, as we know, and I'm sure many of you know, children on the autism spectrum, for example, may have some abnormal movements. They may have some mannerisms, some self-stimulatory behavior. Children with sensory deficits, for example, may bang on their heads or they may rock in a certain way. And so for some people that might be odd, but that's not a seizure. That's that's not even a movement abnormality. It's just a way or a different way of experiencing their environment and so sometimes there is a challenge uh, for many people in trying to tease out what is abnormal and what isn't and that's where we come in as a specialist but just so that you know many other things could be confused for seizures some people have fainting spells what we call vasovagal syncopal events um, younger children especially the toddler age group um, sometimes have breath holding episodes that can be very dramatic, turning blue, going unconscious and those are not seizures. Some people have migraine headaches um, that may not necessarily only manifest as headaches, they may have other signs that may look suspicious for seizures as well. Some people have movement abnormalities, tick disorders, Tourette syndrome and the like. Um, Some people have sleep starts and those are pretty, pretty common and those may mimic seizures, but they're not necessarily seizures. And so there are many, many other things that can look like seizures. So globally, we um, characterize seizures as either focal onset, meaning one part of the limb is what's involved or one sensory organism, organ is involved. Um, And then the opposite or, or on the flip side of that would be generalized seizures where all the units within the brain or at least both sides of the brain are firing or producing movements or lack of movement or some manifestation so focal onset just means one half of the brain or one little part of the brain is is the inciting bit that's sending up the abnormal electrical signals and in some cases we just don't know And so we have focal onset, generalized onset, and unknown, because many times you're not there right at the beginning to know how the seizure started. Because sometimes you could have a seizure that starts in one limb and then spreads to cover the rest of the body, in which case that would be a focal onset seizure that then generalized is the old temperature to the rest of the body. Um, I don't want to go into the details of that. It can get a bit too technical. Um, But then I, I felt as though it was important to just, um briefly mention what the common causes of seizures are and so usually from from a from a neurologist's point of view we limit ourselves to basically six categories as far as where we look for um etiology or causes of seizures and that would be genetic um conditions or underlying genetic abnormalities or changes um a structural problem meaning In some people, because of damage or because of a malformation or something that didn't go right in the formation of the brain early on in life, um, then there may be a a bit of the wiring that came out wrong to begin with. Um, And then we also have a group of disorders that are termed metabolites. So these affect how your body works on all the elements of it from handling the nutrients to the salts and the ions and all that. So important areas of metabolism. Um, Some people have seizures because of immune conditions. So um, think of some people may have lupus that also affects their brain. So that's just one example. And then infections, especially in our setting is a fairly, fairly common uh, cause of seizures. And in some cases, again, we just don't know, but we're living in a time when we're learning more and more and the field of genetics and advances are being made, and I'm sure we're going to know about a bit more as time goes by. So I just like us to limit ourselves to um, the 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 as far as the causes go, the genetic, the structural causes, and the infectious causes, because those are the ones that in our part of the world um, carry the greatest burden, and is where we still need a lot of work. And then when you about seizures you can't talk about seizures without also talking about comorbidities and again chairman um, had mentioned um, a a few of those so disabilities is is such a broad term and it just goes to show that the the limitation to the functionality of the individual carries through to so many other aspects of of their well-being Um, it's painful sometimes to be misunderstood, both on a physical level and also emotionally, psychologically. Um, So these children often also have behavioral issues, sleep disturbances, and I say behavioral issues, I mean some people even have oppositional defiance, um, disorders, difficulties with with their peers and with with authority. Um, And then they also have sleep abnormalities um there's also a heavy burden with with the psychiatric arm and we find that a lot of our children with epilepsy are also disproportionately burdened with anxiety um disorders and depression and the like and so it's not just the one we also have a lot of feeding challenges and when you think about broadly the child with disabilities their experience of the world is quite different from the rest of us and so there's sensory issues as well so something as easy as switching on the lights for you and walking into a room we take it for granted whereas for a child who may have disability it's such a daunting task they have you know issues with the sensitivities different wavelengths frequencies sounds and noises and all that so their experience of the world is very very different from the rest of us and coupled with that Some cases or some forms of epilepsy actually have trigger points that are also environmental. So we have certain epilepsy syndromes that are triggered by, for example, flashing lights. All right. And so these are not people who would be comfortable carrying on. I mean, they have to be very cautious about how their world is, their built environment looks like. All right. Um, And then again, we can't talk about epilepsy without talking about um, the medications. And the medicines can be quite contentious. Um, we have many, many people who have several misgivings, and it's quite understandable. But from from a neurologist standpoint, these medicines are necessary, and which is why this worthy cause has been has been put forth by Sylvia and her team. And I guess part of my role then would be to clear a lot of the confusion or the myths. And then to say the truth about what what is problematic and what people have concerns about and maybe to validate some of some of everyone's points about where people's concerns are with medicine and and i'll start with what most people worry about the side effects some people think that if i start my child on epilepsy treatment they become dependent in a sense you are dependent if you need the treatment but not dependent in a way that you couldn't live without it. It's more that you need it in order to do better. And so seizure medicines, by definition, work to sort of normalize or in some ways dampen that abnormal neuronal firing that I was talking about, that electricity that's a bit wonky in the brain. And so as a a side effect, it will also affect how you behave and how you sleep and whether or not you're drowsier than you want to be. And so I think part of it is, is on us as um, clinicians to manage expectations and explain to our clients and our patients exactly what these drugs are about. And they're not without their side effects and not just on the brain, but also on organs like the liver and the kidneys, um, especially with epilepsy medicine, they're quite notorious for being um, quite toxic on the liver and the bone marrow. But again, with the right guidance and monitoring of side effects, and we're in a time when we can actually check medication levels in the bloodstream. And so I like to say that it is within the limits of safety that um, we offer these treatments, and we always have to do a risk-benefit assessment. And before I prescribe a medication, I must be sure that the benefit outweighs the risk and what risk am i talking about every prolonged seizure as sylvia has said to us and, and nowadays the definition of a long seizure has been changing 20 years ago that say a long seizure was a seizure 15 minutes long now we're talking about three to five minutes and studies have shown that definitely a seizure that goes on longer than five minutes um, is unlikely to stop 30 minutes later without any intervention and so with that duration of time spent with a brain that's firing abnormally, then carries also the risk of further subsequent brain um, compromise or damage in some way. And so for that reason, emergency management with anti-seizure medicine is also important and not just the maintenance long-term treatment. And so it's great that these issues are being highlighted. And that the needs of certain children um, who are in need are being brought forth by this um, organization. Um, the other thing again that usually we need to emphasize is that more than 70% of children with epilepsy will actually go into remission and what do I mean by remission for epilepsy? Remission in epilepsy means that after five years of not taking any medication there is no more seizures in that individual and that they actually carry on as though they never had any seizures in their life. But that's usually after having committed to about two to three years of regular religious medication taking. And so the payoff is quite huge when you think about it. If well managed and generally with the kinds of seizures that we see, most, most respond well to treatment. Now, we're not sure exactly if they were going to go away by themselves or if the treatment adds such appreciable benefit, but it's our belief that it does. Because in the children who don't get um, respite from seizures, we find differences in their outcomes based on whether they were compliant to medications or not. And so that, for me, adds lends credits to the fact that we do need to push for the availability of these medications for the children that need them and it's in such a sad space that we have to live in a time when some people must make a decision as to whether they'll buy food or buy medicine for their children it's quite a sad state and so i'm happy that a number of stakeholders have been involved um, it's my hope that we can push more from the pharmaceutical you know from the government legislation and controls um, arms of it to try and see if if such medicines can be made more subsidized for example Um, we've recently had stockouts of two major um, anti-seizure medicines that have been nationwide obviously because of covid and the restrictions on imports and travel and all that but that alone just shows that perhaps more needs to happen do we need to push for local production of some of these medications. So it's it's a much broader thing than just me talking about what seizures look like and what treatments are needed. It it cuts across several, several, several levels. And I'm glad that at your level, you're able to engage with all these stakeholders and decision makers. And I'll also do my part and push where I can um, in, in my position as well. Um, I don't know if I have any more time, I feel as though I've spoken for very long, maybe during the Q&A people would feel free to sort of ask me questions and maybe I'd fill the gaps rather than just run off and, and talk on and on. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, and we look forward to having you next time in our next episode. Yeah. You have been your host here, Dr. Sylvia Moramo chabwa hosting Dr. Kate Woyege from Aga Khan Hospital. See you next time. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. You could just change someone's life.